Well, we have this uh, uh, series on prophetic questions. And so we have this email address, propheticquestions at gmail.com. I got some good questions this week, so I'm going to start with answering these questions. The first question has to do with universalism. Why, why do we suddenly we hear about universalism a lot? I think the reason is because of Rob Bell's book, uh, Love Wins. So I'll talk a little bit about that book. Uh, it, it is actually... How many people have actually read the book in here? Anybody? One? Well, the book actually is mostly the same kind of stuff I've been talking to you about. It has the same basic analysis about Sheol and Hades and Gehenna and so forth and basically makes the point that the uh, sort of the mythology about hell that's been handed down to us is actually not biblical. And and it largely follows C.S. Lewis's concept about hell in the Great Divorce. How many people have read Great Divorce? Quite a few of you. Uh, but uh, he comes up with a conclusion I would say is not really consistent with his study. And I don't know, this is not that all that unusual for us as humans. But in my view, he marches along with this analysis and it basically says then instead of following the logical conclusion of his analysis that uh, you've got you've got all this information in the Bible that tells you sin is a really catastrophic thing to do and has immense negative consequences, uh, but the negative consequences are more more immediate and uh, more um, let's call it universal than you might think. It's not sort of like you suddenly you know, get, become a Christian and then sin doesn't have consequences anymore. It still has consequences. Instead of coming up with that conclusion, he comes up with the conclusion that, well, apparently since what we were told was wrong, we can kind of believe whatever we want to. And what we'll believe is that God is a permissive parent and a you know, rich daddy that will give us a trust fund and just make everything okay. And it's, it's actually quite bizarre in my view. But I think he holds a lot of sway over it. And I'm, my opinion is that what he's doing is uh, what is the tendency of us as humans to do. And we, we all do it. I think it's one of the things that uh, is like the most important thing for... Not the most important thing. One of the most important things we can do as believers in renewing our mind is really focus on the truth and following who God is and who He says He is. What we tend to do is fit God into our world. We fit God into our culture. In our culture, the spirit of our age is narcissism, which means everything's about me. And the spirit of our age is uh, uh, permissiveness, that somehow consequences shouldn't have sins. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, sins shouldn't have consequences. I'll have to think about the other way. So, and we actually have large political movements based on that. I should be able to do, uh, you know, I should be able to have promiscuous sex and not have any negative consequences. And it's the government's responsibility to come up with a vaccine to make the consequences go away. Uh, so, this is this is how Paul says it, and and he's talking here and. In the book of Romans, the wrath of God is contrasted with the righteousness of God. And he's writing to believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So this is largely a book that applies to everybody. Uh, the wrath of God's revealed uh, from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And I just think uh, that based on what I read in uh, Love Wins and what uh, just talking to Dr. Anderson, who's actually made an extensive study of the subject, uh, he told me that basically the gist of this uh, body of work is we don't want to believe in a God who would do something bad to an, another person. You know, God needs to make everything all better. And I just think that people don't like the, a righteous God. You know, just sort of like they're, 
there's a movement to try to make it where they'll throw you in jail, Lee, for spanking your kids. You know, that people don't like righteousness. And they're just trying to make it go away and fitting it in with our culture. And this is one of the things. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to uh, maintain uh, the truth apart from the culture and uh, not and not have a spirit of just like uh, obstinance. Uh, but as you might expect, if you follow the same passage and go on, there's a the the wrath of God actually has a three part uh, step, and it says, uh, and so therefore he gave them over. He gave them over to their lusts. So this is the first. If we want to sin, we'll go through this same progression. If we if we have a an appetite and we begin to feed it, the, God God initially will hold us back. I mean, many times when you I've and I've experienced this in my life. I had an appetite and I started down the path of I think I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, satisfy this appetite and just got the door slammed in my face. But if I persisted, I'm sure God would have finally said, okay. And that would have been his wrath. He turns us over. And first he turns us over to our lust. And then he turns us over to this passion, uh, which I would, I would say is an addiction. And then we have a debased mind. And he says that... Um, For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions... Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. The men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful. Now this is actually, uh, in the Greek culture, this was like everyday occurrence. It was, uh, as a matter of fact, they had one, one uh, uh, culture. The Spartans actually had homosexuality as an as a, um, uh, official government policy. It was, it was when a boy turned eight years old, he went into the barracks and the first thing they would start doing is uh, teaching him homosexuality. So they believed it would help them on their long marches, not, you know, uh, long for home sort of thing. But Paul says, look, this is not natural and this is part of the, the progression. Well, you know, not surprisingly, Rob Bell now has come out and said that a homosexual marriage is okay. The ship has sailed, he said, and we just need to get behind them and, and uh, uh, you know, love them. They're, they, they're, they're passionate for Jesus too, which to me is completely consistent with uh, where he's coming from. Now, interestingly enough, I would say uh, the great divorce, and C.S. Lewis, to me, is just a great hero of the faith. I, I, I don't think any single author has had a more positive influence on me than C.S. Lewis and at the end of the great divorce, he says, um, "There's well, see, let me, let me. I've got to set the stage because most of you haven't read this. Uh, in the great divorce, there is a, a place called the Gray City, and the Gray City is where everybody goes initially. And there's this bus. You can get on the bus and go to the and go to what amounts to heaven. And uh, the you're a ghost when you go to this Gray City." And when you go to heaven, you can talk to these uh, real giants that are there. And what they're encouraging you to do is stop being a ghost and be real and come on into heaven. And so there's this kind of dialogue that goes on. And that's most of this book is about having a heavenly mindset or a hellish mindset. And it's just a, it's just a story. But the, the primary... Um, heavenly figure that's talking to this guy who turns out to be having a dream in the book is George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a uh, guy that had an immense influence on uh, C.S. Lewis. He was Scottish. So uh, so he's speaking uh, right at the end of the book. He says, um, uh, In your own book, sir, said I, you are a universalist. You talked as if all men would be saved in St. Paul too." And of course, now I'm going to. This is Scottish, so he, he, he answers back Ye can know nothing of the end of all things or nothing expressible in those terms. It may be, as the Lord said to the Lady Julian, that all will be well, and all will be well. And all manner of things will be well, but it's all ill talking of such questions. Because they're too terrible, sir? 
No, because all answers deceive. If you put the question from within time and are asking about possibilities, the answer is certain. The choice of ways is before you. Neither is closed. Any man may choose eternal death. Those who choose it will have it. But if ye are trying to leap on into eternity, if ye are trying to see the final state of all things as it will be, for so ye must speak, when there are no more possibilities left but only the real, then ye ask what cannot be answered to mortal ears. So this is how C.S. Lewis kind of concluded. And I find it kind of fascinating that Rob Bell, uh, although he followed this, didn't follow the conclusion. Where basically C.S. Lewis comes up and says, people are going to get what they want at the end of the day. And if you want, if you want death, you're going to get it. So I, I, think, I think that's what's going on with this deal. Just talking about some questions that were sent in to the email address here. Uh, second question is, is Abraham's bosom still inhabited? So we talked about Sheol having these two compartments. We've got Hades and Abraham's bosom. Are people still in there? Of course, I have no idea whether anybody's in there or not. But I think, I think what we can say is that uh, Thessalonians is clear that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus went there. The thief went there. So it must have still been inhabited after Jesus died, at least for one day. Uh, So whether it is that where Jesus is in heaven is also this paradise, or Abraham's bosom, or... I, I don't know. But I don't think it really matters because we're in the presence of the Lord. And, and I think that's the key thing. Uh, what, we, what I think we can uh, ascertain is that there's still people in Hades because uh, the way it talks about Revelation, that it's emptied. As a matter of fact, it says something real fascinating. If anybody has any idea about this, I'd love to hear it. It says in Revelation, Hades will give up its dead... And then there's a bunch of dead that come from another place. Anybody remember what it says? The sea. And I wonder, what in the world is that? I have no idea. I've I've scratched my head over that numerous times. I can't even come up with anything. So, uh, anyway, there's there's still apparent that still seems to be inhabited. But I I think that irrespective of whether that's still part of it or not, it's either overlaps with where Jesus is or... or, uh, or, uh, you know, it's been it's been uh, empty, and either way, we go to be at the presence of the Lord. The third question I thought was real interesting: What do you think about the book Heaven Is for Real? So this is a personal opinion I get to express because obviously Scripture is not going to talk about that book. But uh, I, I I believe it, and I'll tell you why. You know, you what's that? Oh, Heaven Is for Real. Sorry, it's a book about a like a four year old boy that. Uh, died and came back to life and then um, you know a year later they're driving by the hospital and the parents say something about him being in the hospital and the little kid's doing something he says yeah that's where the angel picked me up and he goes on as if they all like what so over the next six months or so uh, they what 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 comes out is this whole uh, experience of this vision he had or this experience he had I guess of, of actually going to heaven while he was while he was dead uh, and uh, it's, it's really fascinating but the reason I buy it is because his dad or the key thing the key it rings true to me but the key thing is the dad said asked him what did you do while you were there and the little boy says well Jesus gave me some work to do that was the best part. Now, have you ever heard anybody say that there's work in heaven and that would be the best part? Have you ever heard that? I had already come to see in the new earth, which we will cover, that it's going to be a very active, working, striving place, which is nothing like... Man, the picture we're always painted of heaven is this awful Alzheimer's clinic. <laughs> You know, bad hymns and drooling people. You know, there's nothing left to learn. I already know everything. 
There's nothing to do. I'm just floating around. You know, it's just terrible. Who would want to go to that place? The only reason anybody would want to go there is because they don't want to live in a pizza oven. You know, that's the historical kind of uh, deal. But that's not what the new earth is going to be like. It's going to be a rocking, cool place. And um, so we'll, we'll go over that too, uh, maybe next week. Uh, anyway, so I just say, well, no, that, he wouldn't have gotten that from anywhere. Even Awanas doesn't teach that. <laughs> So anyway, so now we'll go into today, which we're going to talk about the rapture. So uh, we've already had a number of raptures. Can you name them? Elijah. Elijah was raptured. He was. How did his happen? Chariots of fire. Chariots of fire. Okay, very good. What else? At least two more. Enoch. Enoch. How do you know Enoch was raptured? He was taken up. Hebrews 11. God, uh, he pleased God and God just took him. He didn't see death, it says in Hebrews 11. Okay, one more. Who? Christ. Jesus, yeah. And his rapture was really cool because they were all standing there and he's talking to them all of a sudden. Really neat. And, uh, no, what kind of a spiritual elevator sort of thing. So we at least three raptures. Anybody think of another one? Those are the only three I know of. So we've had three, and there's more coming. And I'm going to uh, suggest at least three more. At least three more. And there may be way more than that. Who knows? But uh, let's first talk about the rapture we're most familiar with. Now, I did something interesting you might find interesting. I googled rapture. And, you know, on the front page usually tells you kind of what most of the uh, rat traffic. Anybody guess kind of what, what came up? Blondie. What it? Blondie. Oh, okay. No, no, I, 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 I might have put in Bible rapture or something like that. Yeah. I, I probably sort. I probably sifted it somehow. It, it was mostly hate mail. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, there can't be a rapture, or whatever. And so this must be really important because. I remember this uh, story about this uh, Russian girl during the communist era. And she, was, she came to faith one day in class as a little girl looking out the window and it was snowing. And she thought, and her thinking process was, uh, if God wasn't real, they wouldn't talk about him all the time. And, that's, and when, you, when you have somebody that really reacts... In a, in a real exaggerated way to something, uh, you, know, you know there's something to it. Have you ever noticed that? There's no movements afoot to try to get people to stop talking about the Grinch. Right? We're poisoning these children's minds. There's really no Grinch. But there's a lot of movements to kind of stop talking to children about God. It's because he's real. So I think, I think this is really an important uh, topic and I'm going to go through what I think is just a compelling case for the rapture. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to do something that I recommend you do as part of your kind of ongoing Bible study. I'm just going to read this book. I'll comment as we go. Oftentimes, it's just important to see the whole thing as a whole. Just read it like it was a letter written to you. Now, Thessalonica is a city in Macedonia. So these are Greeks. You've got the Jewish Paul writing to the Greek Thessalonians. Um, let's see. I'm reading from the New King James if you have a, if you have a computer and can switch versions. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for, for you all. He's southern, Paul. <laughs> Making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us. 
and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. That's the Greek area around. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, who He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay. So what are these people? What are they like? And what are they doing? They're believers. What kind of believers? Strong believers, right? What's going on in their arena here, in their area? Everybody's talking about them. Why? Their faith is so strong. And what's happening circumstantially? Look at verse 6. What's happening circumstantially? Lots of affliction going on. This is, this is when our opportunity for witness is the greatest. When there's lots of affliction and we don't waver. And because of this, Paul's saying, hey, I don't even need to talk anymore. I mean, you guys are doing such an awesome job. And what are they doing? Look at Numbers, verse 10. What are they doing? Waiting to be rescued by Jesus from heaven. Okay, you get, you get the setup. Massive affliction. They're waiting to be rescued. Chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, that's when they were thrown in jail, you know, had the Philippian jailer thing. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached the gospel of God also. They, Paul, his habit was to work as a tent maker to make his own living instead of asking for money. Verse 10, your witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, become imitators, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Now, what kind of person's in the, in the uh, church in Judea? Jew or Gentile? Jews, okay? So you Gentiles here in Thessalonica are becoming just like doing, following the same path the Jews did in Judea. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. Okay, you follow that? So what's happening? Who's persecuting the Thessalonians? Their own countrymen, the Greeks. Who was persecuting the Jewish believers? The fellow Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, 
having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus? What is Paul looking forward to when he gets to heaven? To be with them. And why? So he can yeah. So he can say, yeah! I mean, look, here, here's something. I'm, I'm uh, involved in a school. And here's a secret we've learned. If you want, if you want parents to come, what, you know what you do? You put the kids on stage. They, parents will sit for an hour and a half so they can see their children for two seconds get up on stage. Now, they may leave right after the children get on stage. Uh, but that, that's, that's what we, we love to see our kids elevated. Well, this, Paul's just a, he's a father. And he says, I want to see you not just get a participation trophy. I want to see you get a crown of life. Chapter 3, therefore when we need, can endure it no longer. So he's thinking, God, these guys are going through incredible, intense persecution and I'm not there with them. Are they staying true? Are they wavering? Are they falling back? I mean, this is hard. When we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer to the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you, we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, as you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I just had to know if you're standing. I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. I don't want you to be just go to heaven. I want you to go in glory. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that He may establish your heart's blameless and holiness before our Lord and God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Okay, So you got these believers, massive affliction, waiting for the coming of Jesus, and He keeps talking about this coming of Jesus. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus, you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And this is the will of God. If you ever have uh, someone come and ask you, well, I just don't can't find God's will for my life. Turn to this verse. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. If you ever want to know what God's will for your life is, this is it. You know, circumstances are fairly neutral. Uh, you know, Paul says, if you're a slave and you want to be free and you get the chance, go for it. But it really doesn't matter that much. What matters is your sanctification. Particularly that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vestal in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother. Be honest in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned and you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness but to holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man but God who's also given us his Holy Spirit. 
But concerning brotherly love, you have no need I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep. Now, what does that mean, fallen asleep? Died, yeah. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who remain are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall also always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So here you've got this whole situation here with the Thessalonians. They're in intense persecution. In fact... Uh, Dr. Anderson tells me the Nero persecutions were going on during this time frame. Anybody remember what Nero did? What are some of the things Nero did? Expelled the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. Expelled them? Okay. Okay. Well, you remember some of the specific things he did with the Christians? He impaled them and set them on fire, used them as torches. They dipped them in tar and set them on torches to light the way so they could have parties. So that's, instead of using the whatever, candles or a torch or something. I mean, it was really horrific. Um, so you've got this really bad persecution going on. They're standing strong and they're looking to Jesus coming. But they've gotten concerned about something. And what is it? The people that died are going to miss Him. What happens to them? They're not going to see Jesus. When are they expecting Jesus to return? Any day. In fact, we're going to see in a minute that Paul says, you know those people that aren't working, that are just sitting around doing nothing? You don't feed those people. If you don't work, you don't eat. Well, what were they doing? They're just waiting. I mean, what? why work? Right? I've got a refrigerator full. Jesus is going to be back any time. This is how, this is how imminent the, the return of Jesus was to them. And But their concern is, well, what about the dead in Christ? I recently uh, heard this comedian that said, uh, actually Wally's got the same issue, he had a cadaver ligament put in, and he said she's already, her, he's already dead what happens when Jesus the rapture comes, the dead in Christ rise first, my leg going to go first <laughs> what? He gets a leg up. He gets a leg up, okay. So they're really concerned about this. And Paul says, hey, don't worry. Jesus is going to come with a shout and, and the dead in Christ rise first. But did you notice who else is in this picture? Who, who else is in this picture when Jesus returns? People who are alive and remain. The dead in Christ come first. Jesus comes back and who's He with? The the archangel and all His saints. It's interesting, isn't it? So, I... You know, this to me is fairly conclusive. Now, um, He then goes on, if you were... So the first question they had is, well, what happens to people that die before Jesus comes back? And they're expecting it any day. And then he's, the next question is, well, when is it going to be? We're tired. I mean, well, this is persecution stinks. We're, we're, glad, we're uh, glad to endure it, but we'd like for it to be over. And if Jesus comes back, it'll be over. We want him to come back. And he says then in chapter 5, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need I should write to you. You know perfectly that day of the Lord. So comes as a thief in the night. When does a thief in the night come? 
unexpectedly, right? Does a thief write you a note and say, hey, I'm coming to rob you tonight? Just wanted to let you know. Don't want you to... they, they, They come at a time you're not expecting. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Okay, so now let's let's flip over to Second Thessalonians. Same group of people. Let's go ahead and skip over to chapter two. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so something else has happened. Now they've got another question. And the gathering together with him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit of word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So what are they worried about now? They missed it. Now what would make them think they miss it? Huh? They hadn't come. What else might make them think they miss it? Time of Nero. What, is, you know, what do they think they might be in the middle of? The tribulation. I mean, it's going on all around them. And apparently someone had told them, hey, you missed it, you're in the tribulation. Verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Nero's bad, but he's not the guy because he hadn't done this. Do you not remember I was telling you this stuff? So, to me, this seems fairly conclusive that you've got this group of believers that are expecting Jesus to come back any day. How could that be true if there's not an imminent rapture? And then they say, ah, we missed it. We're in the tribulation. How could that be true if there's no real tribulation? (laughs) And Paul said, no, no, no. The tribulation doesn't happen until you see these things in Daniel take place and he's got to sit on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem. Yes. Comment on how Paul knew all this. How Paul knew all of. I mean, he's speaking with authority. Yeah, how did he know all this? He has different authority than even yeah, good point. So, how how did Paul know all this? What do you, what 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 would you say? How does Paul know all this? You can't find this really in the Old Testament. Um, you you get some sense of rapture in the Old Testament from Elijah and Enoch. They're pictures of the rapture. But even resurrection. Anybody, anybody know an Old Testament verse that tells about the resurrection? Isaiah 26.19. Very good. Isaiah 26.19. Daniel 12.2. There's one more. Job, I know my Redeemer liveth, and he, I, at the last day I'll show if you know Handel's Messiah. I know that my Redeemer... But the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple of God... And... That's from Daniel. That's right. So we have the whole... Really, everything we see in Revelation, more or less, is told to us in Daniel. But really, to my knowledge, there's only three uh, verses in the Old Testament that explicitly talk about the resurrection. So where did Paul get all this stuff? Paul had about 13 years of training. He had about 13 years of training. That happened after he was a believer and established his credibility with... Disciple before he really started his his ministry, God was taking him to school. There was something else going on. There was further preparation. There was. That's right. He was being prepared. That's just speculation on my part. Yeah. But I think that. Okay. I think that was probably when this understanding, like he makes this reference of of a man being caught up to heaven. Okay. Let's hang on to that. What are you thinking about in Galatians? Galatians 1.15, Paul's um, kind of giving some of his credibilities. In one, Galatians 1.15, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. 
But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. And so, Okay, there's a gap. Look at 2 Corinthians 12 for a minute. Uh, uh, James was starting to allude to. This is my guess, um, Tim. Is this what you were thinking about? Yeah. So it says, uh, chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 12, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations in the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not go, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, which is the idea of the very presence of God. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. How he was caught up into paradise. Here we are in Abraham's bosom now, or wherever it is now. And heard inexpressible words of which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast. So, I think, I think uh, and then it goes on, I, verse 7, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure, a measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me." So, the idea here is that Paul heard things, some of which he's not allowed to tell. Well, what does that tell us? Huh? We're not supposed to know it all. Yeah, he tr- and he trusted Paul, didn't he? So I'm going to tell you this, but I don't want you to tell anything. It's really humorous. There's a place in Revelation where it says, The thunders spoke. And then the angel says, Don't write that down. And there's all these books about, What did the thunders say? <laughs> we don't know. That's the point. There's, part, there's stuff that he's not telling us. So I, I, I think that I think that Paul knew he 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 had firsthand knowledge of all this stuff, and he's fitting it in with Scripture. And of course, you know, it says the thief in the night concept. You know that we won't be expecting it, but Paul's saying there's several things that must take place before the coming of the day of the Lord: the man of perdition, the falling away. Okay, so how so that's a great point. How can you have the thief in the night can come any minute, and at the same time have the day of the Lord won't come until you see this? How can both those things be true? Well, there's the rapture. That, 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 that's where I think the compelling evidence for the rapture is. And it's very interesting that this is such a hated doctrine by so many people. Now, I'm going to tell you why I think it's a hated doctrine. I think that, um, you know, Satan, Satan can speak, sp- spoke through Peter, remember? Get behind me, Satan. So, and if you look in 2 Timothy, he says to Timothy, uh, hey, you need to be able to sit with someone and help them gently to be able to repent so they can escape the wiles of the devil. So just because we're in Christ and have the Holy Spirit in us doesn't mean that we can't be uh, deceived into following the world and the satanic system. I mean, that, that's what we're struggling against in large part. So... Um, I think what's going on is this historic um, game plan that Satan has had to displace the Jewish people, to displace Israel. You know, all, all, all the culmination of everything that happens happens through Israel. And uh, unfortunately, for most of church history, uh, at least the last 1,500 years, the dominant thinking has been that the church has replaced Israel. So God's promises are irrevocable, except in the case, but He can replace them. He can substitute. So I'm, I promised to Keith I'm going to do something, but I'm going to do it for Eric. And I, I, I kept my promise. I just shifted who it was for. I'm okay. Which I don't think really works at all. But that's really, that's really where the, the whole sequence is. And the, the, the idea that Jesus is going to come back, have an earthly kingdom, it's going to be in Israel with a temple, and it's going to fulfill all the Jewish promises, is a, is a very hateful thing to Satan. That's one of his main things that he targets. And I, I just think it's part of trying to displace them. And the truth is, uh, as we've seen in Romans... The Jewish root is the very sustenance from which we as Gentiles uh, drink. And we are wild olive shoot grafted in. And what we have is we are sons of Abraham. 
because we have we are the children of promise because we've just believed and by believing we have all these promises that have been given to us that are just there for us to possess and inherit so I, I think that's what's going on okay so rapture uh, there's two more raptures I think let me show them to you look at Matthew 13 now I'm the first one I would I would pound on the table for this one I would say this is my best read but if you don't like it I would say just then it's just don't worry about it it's this is a uh, highly interpretive Matthew 13 uh, verse 36. Let me, let, me go, uh, let me go ahead and read 24 and read the parable and then we'll read the answer to the parable. So another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good feed in his, seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now does anybody know what a tear is? It looks exactly like wheat with one difference. No wheat kernel. Yeah, it doesn't have anything that's useful. No fruit. So, um, then when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came in and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy's done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, no, lest you'd gather up the tares and also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest... And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So then in verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away. So he's telling that to everybody. And the multitude goes away and went, and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Who's that? Jesus. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Who's the wicked one? Yeah, Satan. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Now, this could just mean that there's going to be a judgment of the, of the wicked uh, and as we look at the resurrection, there's actually more than one resurrection. There's a resurrection unto life and there's a resurrection unto death. And it could just mean that He's going and getting... Um, all unbelievers and uh, you know putting them in the lake of fire. That could mean that. But the specific instance here makes me think that he's talking about the nation itself. And my guess is what this is talking about is that at some point along the way the, uh, there's going to be a group of evil people that are actually going to be raptured right into the lake of fire or right into the judgment of God somehow. Which I, I don't know exactly how that would fit in but it's kind of fascinating. The third rapture that I'll go through, I think, is readily apparent, and it is in Revelation 11. Revelation 11, the two witnesses. Verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours the enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Verse 6, these have power to shut heaven so no rain falls in the day of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So they're going to be in Jerusalem. 
Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Make merry, send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and the enemies saw them. It's a pretty awesome sight, isn't it? So, there's at least two raptures coming. This third one I think is more speculative. I think, I spend some time thinking about what's Satan up to. And I think that there's a constant stream of movies about alien abduction that's always going on. And I think the reason is because he's setting up a counter-narrative for the rapture. And when the rapture comes, he's going to have this whole story about alien abduction. And I won't be surprised that you then start having physical manifestations of demonic presences and UFOs. You know 23% or something like that of Americans believe in UFOs? Uh, there, there, is, there is a pretty widespread... Uh, conversation about things in space and all. We've got a whole space program oriented towards finding life on other planets. Well, I, I suspect that there's going to be uh, a narrative about that, and we're, we're and that's going to be part of what's going on. So, I think we can take great hope from this, uh, but also a sense of urgency. You know, Jesus is coming; He could come any time, and when He does come, uh, our opportunity is done. We never get the opportunity again to live by faith. This is it. Only this time. Our time on earth is a tiny speck compared to all of eternity. And faith is not going to be up there. You can't, you can't believe in what you see. And this one tiny instance we have to know God by faith, it'll be over. And what's done is done. So I think we should live every day as if it's last, our last day, every moment as if it's our last moment. And when affliction comes, we have an even greater opportunity to grow, serve, and, 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 know, and know God, just like the Thessalonians did. All right, thanks God for this wonderful word that you've given us, uh, for the hope that you uh, are not going to leave this world in a twisted state, but you're going to come back, rescue us, rescue this world. And even as we step through death, that it's, not, it's more a step into life because we've believed you and your son Jesus has paid it all. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.